Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast, a podcast all about birds. This week, we talk about the infamous ivory-billed woodpecker. Is it extinct? Is it alive? Is it extant? We actually get a chance to see not just one, but multiple up close and personal at the Chicago Field Museum. So sit back, relax, grab your binoculars, and enjoy as we get into the ivory-billed woodpecker. Welcome, everyone, to the Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. Uh, My name is RJ, and I'm joined by John, Shannon, and Amanda. So just a little background on this podcast. Uh, Amanda and I are just amateur bird enthusiasts and have recently gotten into birding and have had the privilege to meet John and Shannon, who are bird curators and experts at the top of their field at the Chicago Field Museum. Uh, They're avid birders and have kind of been educating us a little bit more um, on birding as we dive into our quest to learn more. I'm going to pass it off to them and let them give a little more information. Shannon, do you want to kick it off? My name is Shannon Hackett, and I'm one of the curators of birds at the Field Museum, and John is the other one. We love to tell stories about birds, and so you show a bit of interest in us, and we're Mm -hmm. like little puppies um, (laughs) (laughs) to someone who has treats. Uh, Anyways, a little bit about me. I grew up in a small town in the mountains of British Columbia. I didn't know anything about birds when I was growing up. I was just a weird kid who liked to be outside and um, look at dead things. <laughs> and <laughs> it's not just an episode of Criminal Minds. So you can actually have a good career from that. I went away to university as the first person in my family to go away to university. And after that, I was lucky to get a job at the museum in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. And I was going to go be a medical doctor because that was the only career advice I ever got until someone told me that I should be a research scientist and showed me what that meant. Mm. Um, Shortly thereafter, I was in an unair conditioned car driving across the United States <laughs> to Louisiana, oh. <laughs> having never really experienced humidity before, to start a master's and a PhD program. Okay. Um, from there, I went to New York City with John, and uh, while we were there for almost three years, we got the job here at the Film Museum in Chicago, and we've been here for 27 years now. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. And we should mention John and Shannon are married. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. And Amanda and I are dating. Yes. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Everyone can keep this straight. Yes, exactly. And yeah. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and mm-hmm. I'm a university brat. My dad was a University of Arizona chemistry professor and a mm-hmm. hardcore bird watcher his entire life. Mm-hmm. And so at some point during graduate school, I realized somebody might pay me to study birds the rest of my life. And mm-hmm. so it's been a been a great trip. And so the Field Museum has a really extensive collection of bird specimen. Do you want to talk a little bit about how many birds you have there? Because that was one of the things that really shocked us when we saw that and we're really interested. I mean, anytime anybody comes into the museum, I'd say you're in one of the greatest bird collections in the entire world. We have upwards of 600,000 specimens. Uh, We probably have representation of about 93% 93% of the world's species. And so it's just, it's really just a spectacular collection. And because it's in Chicago, it's easily accessible to lots of different people from all over the world. And, mm-hmm. and that's one of the goals of our uh, positions is to try to make those collections accessible to people. Yeah. And the one thing most people don't know about when they think of museums, if you ask kids to draw a museum scientist, they'll draw Mm -hmm. like Einstein, you know, (laughs) dusty and old working by themselves. And Mm -hmm. that's not at all what goes on behind the scenes of a modern natural history museum. And so we hope people, when they listen to this, get a bit of a flavor 
for that because even though we have specimens that span 170 years of time, the things we do with specimens today are way different from the things that people did that long ago. So technology has revolutionized how we collect, what kinds of data we collect, and what we can do with the specimens that we collect now. So that's the fun part, is that it's not a static entity. We're not a cabinet of curiosities Mm -hmm. in that in that sense. It's like a living, breathing organism behind the scenes. And then with some of the specimens that are like so old, are you having to update the way that you, I mean, do you treat them differently? Are there things that you're having to do to like older specimens to get them like kind of more current? Well, or We don't use arsenic anymore okay. <laughs> <laughs> to keep okay. bugs away. Okay. So everything for us is a race about bugs, keeping um, the bugs away from chewing up the specimens. So moths are our enemy. Um, you know, there's a lot of insects that we spend a lot of time and effort making sure don't eat up our specimens. And oh, yeah. so, yes, those are big challenges. But but at the same time, I mean, we do the right things to keep the specimens there, and they ought to be there hundreds of years now into the future, and that's mm. that's another goal. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and what is the oldest, the oldest bird or the bird that's been there the longest? It might be a... Uh, well, it hasn't been there the longest. It's the oldest specimen in terms of when it was collected, and it was—I'm pretty sure it's a—it's a Hawaii oo that was uh, collected. In, it's a, which is an extinct bird that was collected in Hawaii by a guy named Townsend back in about the 1840s or so. And then, how did you acquire that, or how did the Field Museum acquire that? So that one came from a—we were given the collection of Princeton University at one okay. point uh, before Shannon and I got to the museum. And so, okay. you know, this is something that happens in the museum community is sometimes collections move around and the Field Museum's taken on some collections like that that are pretty important historically over time. But a lot of things came into the museum through trades. So historically people collected and then sold the specimens that they collected for money. And if you go back to Wallace and Darwin's times, that is a large, in large part, how specimens got into museums because, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of travel and it wasn't so accessible. The world was not so accessible back then. So this is how they made money was to sell specimens. And then, you know, at the beginning of, of having these organized collections, people wanted one of everything. So you would get, if you had five of something, you might trade it to another institution, one of yours for one of theirs that they have five of that you don't have any of. And so there's a lot, there were historically a lot of exchanges between institutions. And we don't do that in the same way um, anymore. Because you have duplicates. You'll have a a number of specimens. There's no duplicate. No? Okay. (laughs) Just like you and Amanda are duplicates. (laughs) That's true. You have multiple of the same species? Yeah. The only way to study them is to have a lot of them. If you think about the entire life cycle of a bird, you look at a migratory bird and it spends its summer here, it might spend its winter in Peru, and then it spends a significant amount of time traveling to and from. There are more than one sex of birds, uh, juveniles and adults, uh, nesting biology, all of that requires you to have enough specimens to actually get an estimate of variance to know what is actually going on requires statistical measures and for that you need uh, quite a few so and then coming back to what we were talking about earlier the Mm -hmm. specimens start spanning time and Mm -hmm. that's a huge factor with respect to looking at the kinds of things we're interested in which is Mm -hmm. evolution and and so 
140 years isn't a lot of time. But once that collection's there, you can build on that into the future and look at how birds are changing. Well, so you mentioned rare birds and I think an extinct as well. And one of the things we wanted to talk about was the ivory-billed woodpecker. And, you know, we seeing that in person was so much fun. Um, we'd watched like a CBS special on the ivory build when it was when supposedly spotted back in the early 2000s and they ran a story. And then just like a few months ago, they re-ran it and updated it. And I'm not sure why exactly they were talking about it, but we were just kind of interested looking at it. And then when we came and saw it like in person, we were like, oh my gosh, wow. there it is. <laughs> and so we wanted to talk a little bit more about like how, I mean, the one that you have at the Field Museum, where how did, how did that come into yeah, play? Yeah, I mean, that's actually one of us. Mm-hmm. We have a series of ivory-billed woodpeckers. We probably okay. have upwards of, of 30 or so. And, okay. and, I looked. Uh, we have 38. Oh, 38. Wow. So, oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And, and the and earliest the, is from 1870. Wow. Uh, and the latest is from 1907. You know, and, and, and again, it, it the reason ivory-billed is woodpecker has so much uh, interest in people is because there are still rumors out there that they're they're extant individuals in the wild. And it's been officially declared extinct, but I think we'll probably see reports going on into the next 20 to 40 years even Mm -hmm. that the birds might still be out there. Yeah, so it comes alive every once in a while (laughs) when people think they have a sighting of it. Okay. Um, And then they put forth whatever evidence they have, Mm -hmm. and then it comes back you okay. know, kind of to life again. So mm-hmm. it's hard to know when something's gone forever, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially for long-lived birds like uh, like the ivory-billed mm-hmm. woodpecker. So how do you know yeah, yeah. when the last one, and this is going to sound a little bit harsh, but one does not make a population. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And a viable mm-hmm. population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you get down to few enough individuals and there's, it's really difficult for any species to survive, mm-hmm. and it's impossible when you've cut down almost its entire habitat. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So when they started logging large trees in the southeast, mm-hmm. the habitat that w- was required for ivory-billed woodpeckers just got smaller and smaller and smaller oh. until there was one tract in Louisiana. What was that place called? The Singer Tract. Yeah, which the is Singer a- Tract. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, they just whoever owned that wouldn't preserve it, they mm. cut it down. And oh basically that was, you know, people's sensibilities yeah. were different then. Yeah. Now yeah. I think you'd have a lot more power um, mm-hmm. and yeah. momentum oh, behind yeah. preserving space like that. Yeah. But, you know, those trees were money. Yeah. Mm. And okay. our knowledge of conservation and how to mm. conserve birds was not what it is today. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. You know, those birds couldn't survive once mm. that, except in people's imagination, which is why it lives, because mm. it's a big, charismatic woodpecker. Yeah, it almost yeah, has so. like a folklore element at this point. It's it, like well, people it travel. Does. And, it, yeah. it, it absolutely does. And I, and I point out that, that there are some big tracts of forest in mm. Arkansas and mm-hmm. Florida and Louisiana mm-hmm. that people don't get into very often. Mm-hmm. And so that's where a lot of the reports have come from. Oh, okay. yeah. But there yeah. was intensive um, recording and oh. good bird surveys that were done in 2000, what, 2006 to 2010 mm-hmm. to look for that by the people who do this the absolute best, the mm-hmm. Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Okay. Um, 
And they spent a lot of time, and there was a lot of man hour mm. of censuses oh, okay. happening and mm. recording devices that were left out through the year. Okay. And there was never any definitive um, sightings okay. of, of this bird or sounds of this bird, oh. which is one of the things that always gets people interest is oh, yeah. because they think they hear it. Oh, okay. Um, but the reality is, John, that most of these places that people go – when you listen to the recordings, you can hear cars in the background. Oh. So we think they're remote, but they're not that remote. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I right. was just listening to the latest. Um, there was just a paper that's been put on this public archive of science, and I was listening to the recordings that they think they have oh. of this bird. But you can hear cars all oh, the way yeah. in. Okay. <laughs> so okay. it might seem remote, but yeah. reality is probably less than 10 miles from okay. a fairly major road. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's true for most of that habitat. Okay. Because some of it, like you have to, you can only get to by like canoe and things like mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's pretty hard to get back there and go spot them, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't yeah. mean a road's that far away. Yeah. True. 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 Do we know yeah. what it sounds like? Yeah, we do. Yeah. It's got a very distinct, It's it does a couple things. It, 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 uh, the way it taps on the wood is distinctive, and then the, it's got a couple different calls that 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 have been recorded um, from extant individuals back in the fifties. Oh, okay. Because yeah, there there's no a... photo, oh, no color photographs, right? All the photographs or footage that were taken was back when. I don't I think, think there's any. I think there's one color photograph that oh. there's a debate on whether or not it's a it's a living bird actually okay. Okay. so no i don't think there there's okay. some video from the 50s okay um mm-hmm. from this yeah. from louisiana okay but there has been recordings of its call though right in the in yeah. that videos the calls are pretty good in those videos too okay. so when it when it started to decline there was an, a lot of effort taken to go and use the technology of the time to record it um visually and mm. to record sounds so okay that's the most we have now of what that bird might have looked like when it flew or mm. uh, the kind of sounds it might be making at its nesting holes and okay. things like that. So, mm. uh, but, that's, but that's it. And so yeah. when you're dealing with such fragmentary comparative material, you can make almost anything mm. turn into a, uh, an ivory build woodpecker. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you really want to badly yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think, think I, that's a lot of what's happened is that, you know, John always tells the story of, well, you want to believe it's true, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you do, but it's, I, yeah. I think that's a fool's errand at, okay. th- at <laughs> this point. Now, has um, there been more recent evidence since that early 2000 sighting? Was there something that... Well, I think the question is what you define as evidence. I mean, okay. certainly there are people that think they have evidence. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that always strikes me as funny is they'll say, well, it's an undisclosed locality because they, they, I guess, want to get more conclusive data before they tell people where it is, or maybe they don't even want to tell people where it is. This mm-hmm. is something that's happened with other birds like Eskimo curlews, which are extinct. And I haven't heard of anybody talking about them, but for a long time there were these rumors that the Fish and Wildlife Service knew where there some, where some were, and and these stories kind of get out there. And with ivory build, they continue to persist more than any other extinct North American bird. It's oh. And I think true. that's because the fame that would go to the person who definitively demonstrated oh. that would be 
at least in the bird world, you know, I'm mm. not talking about world world, but in the <laughs> well, bird uh, world. CBS was running stories on it, maybe in true. the world yeah. world. You know, the, yeah. the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation ran a uh, story on it not too long ago oh, as God. well. And so these latest sightings are from pretty recently, the mm. sightings are from pretty recent. But okay. I don't, I looked at them today and I'm like, you, I no way would I uh, okay. <laughs> have, have said that those sounds were definitive of okay. anything. And the sonograms, the way they are in in this uh, main manuscript that's on bioarchive is like, is these are not convincing. But the interesting thing about what happened in the mid-2000s is it spawned a whole bunch of people to look at the evidence, the evidence of that was being proposed for Ivory Build Woodpecker at the time, and then to figure out how you'd know with these fragmentary pictures and mm-hmm. this like videos, it's all blurry. Yeah, you know, you'd think it would be a lot better because we have good equipment now and on our phones, but it's characteristically not. It's oh. just like some, you know, all these conspiracy theory kind of like blah, shadows. And, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But the one of the interesting things that was done. One of the most compelling um, morphologies that people thought told some, that some of these birds were ivory billed woodpeckers was the pattern of white on the back, which is very pronounced on okay. an ivory billed woodpecker. And mm-hmm. then you compare it to what it's more likely to be, which is a pileated woodpecker, which okay. is way more common. And you, mm-hmm. if you picked up the specimen, you'd look at it and you say, well, of course you can tell the difference yeah. between these things. Mm-hmm. But the video is of a bird coming off of a tree. Oh, yeah. And when birds come off of trees, they do weird things with their wings. And mm-hmm. so the white parts of uh, pileated woodpeckers are exposed mm-hmm. when they come off. And so it looks like it has a white back, but it mm-hmm. actually doesn't okay. have a white back. And so mm-hmm. you really, so that people dissected that in very, very high levels of yeah. of detail. <laughs> yeah. uh, mm-hmm. You know, and we're, it was pretty convincing to me that mm-hmm. even if you – that we don't know very much about what birds look like when they take off a perches. Mm-hmm. They can look completely different than the birds we have in our collections or than the birds that you see through your binoculars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I found that really fascinating and interesting mm-hmm. angle to take and use of new technology to look at videos and images in a different way. Yeah. And to actually look at the birds in a different way. Oh, too. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't mean ivory billed woodpeckers are alive, though. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon's the, the realist. And I am, John. This is the, I'm the ha- glass half empty person, and mm-hmm. he's the glass 90% full person. <laughs> yeah, and at, at the same time, I'm not going to buy a ticket to go down to Arkansas and spend a bunch of weeks looking around yeah. in the forest. And, and I, I, you know, again, I fascinated by the fact that people continue to do this because mm-hmm. they do and mm-hmm. uh, and it's people out that are highly qualified ornithologists and mm-hmm. they're going out there with a lot of equipment and mm-hmm. you know one of the things I always say to people is if you go online there's a picture of the probably 98% of the 10,800 species of birds in the world mm-hmm. and very few birds have been searched for more intensively than mm. than ivory-billed woodpecker has. Mm. Yeah. If if it was spotted, would you go out and try to try to see it if it was confirmed and there was a photo? That's an interesting question cuz cuz on on a lot of those things 
I'd just be happy knowing it was there. Yeah. Like like yeah. the the idea that that I need to see it. Mm-hmm. it kind of fell away for me sometime when I started graduate school, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I just I'd, I'd love to see it so that it was that mm-hmm. it was there. That'd yeah. be great. And okay. you know, it's it's not just so there's basically three species of these large uh Campephilus woodpeckers that are considered to be extinct now. So mm. the ones in the southeastern U.S., there was also a population in Cuba. Mm. And then there was imperial woodpecker in the highlands of Mexico. And and all three of those uh, birds, just like Shannon was saying, were living in areas that were intensively logged mm. when once uh, people started moving into those areas. Mm-hmm. And it, almost certainly habitat loss is the primary factor, although it is true that you know, an ivory-billed woodpecker would have been a big target for a kid running around in the forests of Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think I'd go chase it in that sense. I didn't grow yeah. up doing that. Okay. So my biggest exposure to birds was through dead ones. Okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> honestly. And so what I would like to know is that that bird, when it died (laughs) would come to a museum so that its story could continue to be told so that's the thing about the great parts of our jobs is that we have extinct species we can Mm -hmm. learn more about them a lot more about them even Mm -hmm. if they're not living as long as we preserve this their specimens they still can be part of trees of life we can sequence their whole genomes we can understand the population dynamics of them through their through sampling their genomes now. Mm-hmm. So that enables us to better tell the, the historical story of mm. uh, ivory-billed woodpeckers and then maybe learn something that helps us protect other vulnerable species okay. today. And so it's getting comparative data that enables you to understand population dynamics of birds better is mm. what's going to help us now. Mm-hmm. It's not going to bring ivory-billed woodpeckers back despite mm-hmm. all of the rewilding projects that are going on, very Mm. expensive, trying to reconstitute uh, species that are extinct. That stuff I don't, you know, I understand why people are fascinated by that. Mm. You know, the whole Jurassic Park thing is really fascinating for people Mm. and for science, scientists to kind of conceive of how you might do that. But Mm. I want to know that any bird like that that dies will come to a museum and not just be, yeah. you know, eaten in the forest by bacteria and beetles. Do you think people get most excited about the ivory build when they come and look at the specimens that you have at the Field Museum? Is that kind of one of the highlights? or? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that one of the reasons why it's in that, what mm-hmm. I like to call the gee whiz drawer that we oh. showed you on the tour when people yeah. come behind the scenes, that that's mm-hmm. why that's there, because it's a great story. Yeah. It absolutely is. So I was with a bunch of... Um, eye surgeons, veterinarian eye surgeons yesterday, there's 16 of them that came into the museum to me and I showed them the ivory-billed woodpecker, but what fascinated them even more, and I found this every once in a while, is uh, I showed them a Carolina parakeet, which is another mm-hmm. extinct bird. Mm-hmm. And and their first reaction was, we used to have, North America used to have, have parrots? Oh yeah. You know, you know this used. <laughs> where's the where's the place on that? I think that one is from South Carolina. Is that where that That's one's from? Florida. Yeah. Or Florida. I'm yeah. not gonna lie. I had, they, that, I had that same reaction, yes, Shannon. Me too. <laughs> yeah, so that yeah. that is not an uncommon thing because, you know, this is why fossils are so fascinating too. There's evidence of past life on Earth that has nothing to do with 
what's currently there and things that blow your mind. Like for me, the biggest mind blower was that there are hummingbirds, fossil hummingbirds in Germany. Oh. Wow. So that's not that's not the way we consider the geography of hummingbirds, mm-hmm. which is in the you know North and South America. We don't. So there's there's no hummingbirds currently in Germany, but no. there's fossils of them. But there were. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. So if you think about wow. it. And how long do they trace back to? Like, when do they think the hummingbirds were there? I mean, is there... I don't know when the last date... I think it, I want to say it's, it's Eocene, so it's 20... Yeah, 20, 20 million years, something okay. like that. Wow. Okay, wow. That's a long time. Yeah, but, it, yeah. you know, it, it shows you how much things have changed over Earth's history. And, and mm-hmm. you know, that's something that we're really interested in. And, and mm-hmm. again, all this ties together. So, you know, with Ivory Build Woodpeckers... One of the interesting questions is, how do you get a distribution within that group of birds that includes central Mexico and the mountains, the southeastern forests, and then out in Cuba and, in, again, in mountains with, with uh, coniferous forest? Okay. Okay. Yeah. But studying their genetics can often tell you how that happened. Mm-hmm. So studying the genetics of ivory-billed woodpeckers and their relatives showed that the Cuban um, species mm-hmm. is probably not the closest, well, the closest dead now relative of our ivory build, mm-hmm. but that the Mexican, um, the Mexican population was closer. So, uh, you know, which is, a, again, a weird distribution if you think about it geographically. Mm-hmm. The two ends of the distribution are each other's closest relatives with the thing in the middle being different. But, okay. but, wow. but, but you know, I think over time, one of the things we've realized is that you never know what bird in the collection is going to get people's attentions and so so you know you can start with something like that and Mm -hmm. then move on and talk to people about the 10,800 other species that are out there oh yeah Yeah. so if someone wanted to come see them at the field museum what's the best way to do that well so the the interesting thing about ivory bill is Mm -hmm. there are mounts on display in the public areas okay okay and then Mm -hmm. again as you guys found out Mm -hmm. i mean i always like to say even though they point out to you that less than 1% of the specimens in the museum are on display when they describe what's at the museum. The truth of the matter is we want people to know that these specimens are there. They're behind the scenes, but that doesn't mean that they aren't there to be used and there to be seen. And so so we bring people behind the scene on a regular basis too. So, you know, if people play their cards right and Make arrangements. They, you know, or they can get behind the scenes. Or become a field museum member because yeah. we have. Uh, if That's you're true. a member of the field museum, we mm-hmm. have members' night, which is coming up next next week. So it's oh. not too late. Okay. <laughs> um, to go and get your memberships, but we open, um, and this is the first time since before COVID that we're really opening up mm. the museum so that people can our members can come behind and see the research and collection areas, watch us prepare a specimen, mm-hmm. listen to us and our graduate students talk about what we're working on and why, or what our favorite specimen is and why. Um, So there's all kinds of things like that. There's no end of the fascination Mm. that can come from, uh, that can come from the specimens. Yeah, that's great. Most people have no experience with it. So when you show them anything, you open a drawer of the museum's Mm -hmm. collections and there can be a hundred birds in the drawer and, and it's, and you go through it and see all the geographies that are represented and mm. all of the differences in what their beaks look like or what colors they have yeah. and how colors get made. And mm-hmm. there's no end of stories that can be told that are really fascinating. We were certainly fascinated when we yes. came. So I you know, hope more people come and check it out because it was such a good time. 
So we have some uh, mailbag questions that have come in. So this is the first one. Um, this is from Dan in San Francisco. Um, he said, really excited about the podcast. I live in San Francisco and have been looking to get into birding for a long time. I live in the city, though, and I'm curious what advice you have to get out and see birds for someone that lives in the city. Well, I mean, one thing I would say is that even within the city, you can see an awful lot of birds. Some cities are better than others. Um, San Francisco being right along the coast, there are going to be lots of water birds out in the bay and things mm -hmm. like that. So, And then the parks will have groups of birds. And, mm -hmm. you know, Probably one of the best things is to hook up with an Audubon Society or, or one of the local bird groups. Um, but then from there you can get into, well, you don't even have to go to those groups to get into something like eBird where you can get on and find out what's in the area and where to look for it. And you know, there's a ton of information now available to anybody who just wants to go out and look for it online. You know, the world is getting more urbanized mm -hmm. and urban areas are becoming more and more and more important for wildlife. Mm -hmm. So just because you live in an urban area doesn't mean you don't have wildlife right, all right. around you. And it doesn't mean that your observations aren't critical for understanding what is where, when, and why. Yeah. So th there's a lot of urban bird research that's really critically Im important now. Yeah. Important for things like building design. Mm -hmm. um, that comes, these are all observations that come from urban studies of birds, mm -hmm. what kind of light regimes should buildings have to prevent birds from smashing into their windows and killing themselves. So you, right. These are urban, mm -hmm. uh, it's urban data and it's really important too. And it's also, you know, nature is a prescription. Mm -hmm. So my doctor actually prescribed it to me. She uh -huh. said, you're too stressed. You, mm -hmm. I want you to go outside and I don't care what you do out there, yeah. but go spend at least 10 minutes a day yeah. just wandering around and freeing your mind. Right. So and my doctor gave me a prescription to go outside, but I'm lucky I get to do that for my job anyway. Yeah, but yeah. I think it would be good for other people to just take their time outside. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think even just getting out and just attempting it, like the gears start turning, you start looking for more. Um, I feel like just, you know, we kind of have like a trained eye now compared to where we were six months ago. And it's like even just going outside in an urban park, now all of a sudden my eyes are going to the trees. I'm starting to look for things. So, you know, if you live in an urban area, I feel like just getting out and trying it, it just kind of has a snowball effect and you start to look for more and more. It's, yeah. I mean, and, and, and then, you know, having been here for a while and having programs in the museum, like our assistant collection manager, Mary Hennon, has banded the peregrine falcons across the city mm -hmm. in Chicago for the last 40 years or so. You realize that, you know, even if you're on the 20th floor of some building, mm -hmm. you can look out the window and see birds. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they're, they're all levels through the city, too. I mean, bird watching got really important in the pandemic mm -hmm. because that was something you could do that was healthy and didn't expose you to COVID on average. And I have to say that the house sparrows in our yard became my friends oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> over the last three years. I'm yeah. quite attached to them now in a way uh -huh. I certainly wasn't hmm. three years ago. I spent uh -huh. a lot of time watching house sparrows oh, yeah. in my backyard. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how much you can see just if you take the time and try to take it all in. So, yeah. yeah. And every observation counts. So if you put them in databases, every observation counts. Yeah. Public databases are really important for science now. Mm. All right. Well, I think that's it for our mailbags. So thank you for sending those. Um, we really enjoyed them. Um, you can email us at podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com. Um, so please send your questions to us, and we'll answer some on our next episode. 
Um, and I think that's everything for this first episode. So thank you everyone for listening. Um, is there anything anyone wants to add? At yeah. spring in Chicago, go birding. Yeah, yes, yeah, get outside. Go, <laughs> yeah. go outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Get your get your nature prescription. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Birds of a Feather Talk Together podcast. Uh, we appreciate you listening uh, to our episode about the ivory-billed woodpecker. Um, as we mentioned, we do have a mailbag, um, so please reach out to us at podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com, and we'll try to answer your questions. Um, we've got an exciting mailbag episode coming up soon uh, that's going to be all mailbag questions. Um, also, our next episode, please tune in as we talk about the birds of paradise. We're excited for that one. Um, So thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, We are an independent podcast, so we ask you to please share this podcast with your friends if you like it. We either tell a family member, a friend, someone who loves birds, someone who's just trying to get into birds. Uh, We ask that you please share it um, as we are just getting started and trying to reach as many people as we can. Um, So thanks. We really appreciate you listening, and have a great one. Bye. We also want to say thank you to Earhole Studios in Chicago for allowing us to record at their studios. Uh, Earhole has been so great to allow us to try to uh, get this podcast up and running and assisted in the recording. So thank you to Earhole Studios in Chicago. Cheers. <laughs>